conversations may run dry as night passes by, but I don't mind sitting in the silence with you. Welcome to episode two of Conversations That Shape Us, the podcast series by Leadership Space. My name is Elise Cernick. I founded Leadership Space to provide visionary social purpose leaders with specialised support for their own leadership development and to lead organisational change, which is exactly why I asked Richard Spencer as today's guest and I'm really delighted that he accepted. Richard has upwards of 20 years experience in the sector, but it's not just his years that for me mark him out as someone really worth listening to. Richard's a courageous person, um, created his own life path and he continues to do so. He's absorbing to listen to, in my opinion, deeply thoughtful, charming and not someone who falls into the trap of repeating trite and easy statements either about leadership or the social purpose sector. So Richard, thank you and welcome. What I'd love to cover with you are three kind of different topics. Firstly, um, to hear from you on the topic of creating a social purpose career in life. Um, Then if we can move on to the question of the NDIS, um, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, and what it means in terms of sector disruption. It's a big policy change. It's affecting human service organisations that you've had a lot of exposure to over the last couple of decades, so interested in your unique perspective. Um, And then I'd like to finish um, with your reflections. Um, What can leaders do that really support successful organisational change for those in the human services area that are directly affected by the NDS, but also more broadly, given your um, diverse experience as a mentor and leader. Do you want to start with telling us uh, what your personal journey has looked like and um, perhaps why you've taken the decisions that you've taken? Mm, right. Thanks, Elise. Um, yeah, no, look, it's, it's as I sort of reflect back on what I do today and what that journey looks like, it was certainly unpredictable, um, never, never quite what I intended. Uh, but I think there are a couple of um, experiences that are really um, uh, shaped what happened and what, what I did with my life after that, particularly going back to when I was 17, I was an exchange student in the United States living in a very rich community north of New York City, but um, terrific people who took a group of us into Harlem on Friday afternoons to um, ostensibly do work with young black and Puerto Rican kids. Uh, The learning experience was not theirs, it was ours. So that exposed me to a completely different world. I mean, this was a year after the Harlem race riots, um, uh, a time of um, a lot of reflection and angst in the United States. and I, So I got to see a bit of that, and that stayed with me. I, you know, I don't think I instantly changed my life at that point, but it stayed with me. So when I came back to Australia, went to university, set out on a law career and had the experience in one of the major law firms in Sydney, travelled overseas because of that first experience, ended up working for Rio Tinto for 10 years, uh, fantastic experiences, um, loved every minute of it, really gained a great deal. Um, came back to corporate Australia in the mid-80s, but look, I, I sort of began to do more, a little bit more self-reflection, what was important in my life. I'd enjoyed my corporate career, but I guess I was looking for something else, so I made the decision to uh, join UNICEF at that time. I was the National Director for UNICEF in Australia. That that no took me idea on a... that was in your background. Ah, right. <laughs> <laughs> the things you discover. Uh, and that took me on a, on a journey to Brazil because I, I worked with UNICEF in Brazil for a year and 
Then shortly after that, I had the the privilege to be the president and CEO of the exchange student exchange program that I'd been on at a much earlier age, based in New York City. Uh, and so I was in New York for eight years. Came back here to be CEO of Cerebral Palsy Alliance. Um, then had some time out in Bangkok, um, which we can come back to if that's of yeah, interest. Yeah. But then back to being the CEO of the Benevolent Society, which was the, the, the last full-time executive role I had. So, look, none of that was predictable. I think at um, a pivotal point was when I was roughly about 40-ish and some people think, well, that's the classic midlife crisis uh, but I liked the reaction of a friend of mine in the UK at the time when I told him about this, and he said, oh, I don't know, I think it's a midlife solution. Mm. And it has been for me. So, you know, for the past 25 years I've been on an extraordinary journey, and it continues. I think if you're interested and passionate about what we all do in this sector and about leadership and how to bring about change, you, you, you never stop learning, you never stop having new experiences, which I think are really important mm. and meaningful. And, you know, you gave me a very nice introduction, which my reaction was, gee, if you hang around long enough, you become interesting to people. (laughs) So, but look, part of that is reflecting on a lot of those experiences and how do you take all of that and and continue to kind of make a contribution, if that doesn't sound too too self-focused. But... Mm. uh, but look, you've um, got a portfolio of stuff now too, right? You're with SBA on the. Yeah. Board. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and look, stepping down from full-time mm-hmm. executive roles um, was fascinating because that gave me the opportunity to, both as a director of Social Ventures Australia, and I was chairing a uh, the redevelopment of a, a public housing estate in Western Sydney, doing various other things. It gave, it gave me the opportunity to to look around at what's going on in the sector. You don't get that opportunity, I think, as a CEO. You're just full on the whole time uh, thinking about and reflecting on your own organisation. So it's quite a luxury to kind of sit back and see what's happening and try and think about, well, what really matters here? What's important? What are the big changes taking place? I've also been able to do some mentoring of leaders, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. I find that really fascinating. And I'm surprised by it as well because I was a bit... You know, earlier in my career, I was a bit, oh, yeah, yeah, mentoring's okay, but I'm not sure what that's about. I thought at one stage, hmm, might be a bit of a fad. But having done it now for about five years, I think it's enormously important for anybody in a senior leadership role to have that opportunity. It may be friends, it may be family, it may be a professional mentoring relationship, but you do need that opportunity to reflect, to think, to explore ideas with somebody kind of in a, you know, in a bit of a safe zone outside mm. your normal day-to-day work. Um, and you're doing a... You actually kind of came back as the interim CEO for Jewish Care too, right? So you, yeah, you yeah, like, not allowed to stay away for... No, interesting, yeah. <laughs> no, no, I look, I, I think, once again, that's a, it's a very interesting uh, situation. Uh, Claire Vernon, who's very successful CEO of Jewish Care been doing it for eight years and just I think very sensibly said look I need a break I need to re-energize I need to kind of think a bit about you know uh, where the organization could go from here so so what that uh, so what happened was she decided to take a six-month sabbatical asked me if I'd come into the organization during that period which is what I'm doing at the moment so delighted to do so uh, and she and the board were terrific they said don't sit there take a look Tell us what you think. What might else we be doing? What could we be reflecting on? So, so that's fantastic of Claire and the board. They gave me a bit of Very a license. Courageous. Yeah, no, actually, a few people have said that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, Claire's a confident, uh, successful leader, and you know, I think that's fantastic that somebody would do that. Mm. That just shows an openness to thinking, new thinking, new ideas, and um, 
Uh, and I've, I think some good things are coming out of that already and will do so when she uh, takes on the role again. Mm, fantastic. It is a very great tribute to her and she is a, a very solid leader. Um, uh, when I think about you and your career and what sort of struck me about your character, you know, a reflection of your character, one of many things is the your stepping out and becoming a full-time father, the, the pe- taking the parenting role sort of, and that was before the Benevolent Society? Yes, that's that right. right, yeah. Well, you know, that, and, and for many people there's a desire to change course, um, take time out, get work-life balance, mm. and... You know, you, there's some key pivot points in your life, one where you moved from commercial to social purpose from an outsider's perspective and one where you took on the primary parenting role. What, what's informed your ability and perspective around making those choices? Uh, look, I think it's important um, always to just reflect on who you are and what matters. Um, and I'm not saying I do that every day. That would be um, uh, that would be slightly ridiculous. But I think you know, at certain points in your life, you do need to kind of step back and reflect a bit on what am I doing. It was summed up for me um, by Norman Drummond, who uh, is one of the early friends of SVA, um, wonderful Scottish-based leader that many listeners would know of, and. He uh, posed three questions, which I think is great for any individual or any organisation. That is, who are you? Why are you living and working in the way that you are? And the third one I often describe as the zinger, and that is, what may you yet become? And, of course, those are um, simple questions, but deeply reflective questions. Um, And I think that um, I I was a late parent, (laughs) Um, so I, uh, and a great joy, it suddenly was in my life and my wife's life. And, uh, and we said at that point, we did a couple of things. We said one of us, both of us will not work full time uh, from this point on while our daughter is young and going through her formative years. Um, and we're basically stuck to that formula. So my wife had the opportunity to run UNICEF in Southeast Asia based in Bangkok. We were there for nearly four years. So I... I did one or two consulting roles and I took the opportunity to do some postgraduate work in ethics at the time, which I'd always been fascinated by but hadn't really had time to reflect on it, So, and combined with the parenting role. Um, incredibly important, you know, as, as I look back on that. My daughter's now 17, but, I mean, that was a, just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And I see so many parents, uh, typically males, who miss out on that and you just cannot substitute those years. I mean, she was aged three through to seven, uh, and I had a lovely experience when I was interviewed for the Benevolent Society role because I thought, you know, the question's going to be, so what have you been doing for the past four years? And I thought, well, the answer's going to be, which it needed to be, well, I've been a stay-at-home dad. And I thought, it would be interesting to see what the reaction is. And the reaction I got was, well, that's terrific. I think that really, you know, adds... It's not expressed that way, but, I mean, the message I got mm. back was, actually, we think that's a plus. So I thought it was, I thought this is the organisation <laughs> I want to be involved with because I thought that was incredibly thoughtful and insightful. But it was a risk on my part. You could have easily got the reaction, well, you know, what's this guy been doing? He's obviously not serious about leadership roles or, mm-hmm. you know, jobs or whatever. But that wasn't the reaction I got. And I, I, and the person who said that at the time, I will always remember that and treasure that reaction because it was, I didn't need it, but it was affirmation that actually 
that is a good thing. It was obviously terrific for me, but it was also relevant professionally. And also, as you say, there's something about trust, you know, trusting that the right place will value the choices you've made. Um, so, you know, sort of moving to the, the sector perspective, you know, you've seen, and, you know, cerebral palsy is an interesting one. They, they seem to be very um, proactive in terms of adapting to the NDIS. You've seen the Benevolent Society, now Jewish Care, uh, even from the perspective of SVA. There's a lot of conversation about the NDIS and its impact of creating sort of industry disruption and that, you know, the sector's not going to look the same in five, ten years' time because of what's happening. What's your perspective about the impact of the NDIS, its, its ramifications for organisations that are in the human services area? Is it, is it as big as, as, you know, people sometimes talk about it? I think it is, and even bigger than I was thinking going back a few years ago, because when the talk began about these changes, it all sounded pretty theoretical. I think there were some notable exceptions with some organisations actually getting on the front foot and thinking through what that means and starting down that journey. I think a lot of organisations and people haven't. Probably two reasons. Um, one more kind of generic change is always difficult, and particularly in a very a period of substantial change. So I think there's a lot of resistance. I think uh, a lot of fear. Uh, a leadership, a lot of leadership is about actually dealing with that and engaging with it in a positive way. But to the specific example of NDIS, um, you know, we have a situation. That, I mean, this is um, perhaps putting it a bit simplistically, but I think it's still kind of a real description. Most of the funding for those services has been government funding. Uh, and I often said in some organisations, you know, your client is not the person. Your client is government. Uh, they would give you the money. So a lot of organisations are extremely good at knowing how to write applications, have relationships with government, which turns into long-term funding relationships. And why not? That was, the, that was how the arrangement worked. So here we are with the client, uh, the real client, the person in need, now having the funding now having the, both the choice and the power, word that often doesn't get used, but it's really very relevant, the power to decide what they want. Um, and we've had a wave of reactions to that, to, um, uh, to the kind of rejectionist, philosophical, this is economic rationalism approach, um, uh, right across you know, the, the wide spectrum of reactions people have. But overwhelmingly, it is a good thing but there's never it comes with pros and cons. Mm. I mean, the advantages are, uh, and we're seeing this in consumer-directed care also with 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 home care. Uh, the clients having a choice about their own lives and that sense of control over their own lives is lives is absolutely fundamental. I mean, I philosophically, I think you know this is a terrific thing to do, but it is hugely complex. Um, it can be met with a degree of cynicism within the sector. You do get a, a number of people who say, well, this is just government wanting to step out of the way. Mm. This is government that's going to reduce... Abdicating their responsibility. Yeah, abdicating way. their responsibility, mm. lowering the amount of dollars. But, you know, I, I enter that debate full on <laughs> because, you know, if, 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 you, if you're on either end of that debate, it's, it's a fruitless exercise. 
uh, I start from the position it's a good thing and the responsibility we in the sector have, and the government has as well, is to make this work well for people. And what does that mean? It means getting real about the resources that are available. Mm. It means getting real about how do you combine um, great service delivery, new models of service, with financial accountability. And... um, you know, just to tell one a little story about that, when I once, uh, one organisation I was new to, uh, and in the first meeting I was asked the question, are you an economic rationalist? And I didn't know what that meant at the time, but I could kind of get the drift of where it was going. And, of course, the theme of that is that, um, that only the money matters, and that's what's driving this. And, and I, I reject that. And I said, no, 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 no. I said, look, there, you know, the, the old days of saying we just need more money don't work. There is no more money. There can be some negotiation around the fringes. But the responsibility we all have is to work across what is available and how do we get smart, effective and get great results and great outcomes mm-hmm. at the same time being financially accountable. Well, NDIS and Consumer Directed Care brings that into sharp focus. Mm-hmm. So huge challenge, and I think it, it we've got some way to go, frankly. Mm. I mean, one of the arguments I've heard is that, um, you know, the cost of delivering services to the most in need is not accounted for in part of this process. Mm. What's, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, a part of, and it's a shared responsibility, government's responsibility is to get really uh, smart and targeted about who actually gets this funding, where's the real need and how do they make sure that gets into the right hands to make good decisions. They then have a regulatory oversight responsibility to make sure that the inevitable kind of shysters, for want of a better expression, Mm -hmm. that turn up in the space and think they can make money don't. So Mm -hmm. there's some protection there. But coming back to our sector's responsibility, yeah, look, it is to... um, to be responsive and to truly engage with the person and what choices they want to make in their life and how do we meet that. And I think, you know, that can be purely responsive. We give them whatever they want, even though we don't think it's what they need. Well, yeah, but, you know, that's a bit of a cop-out too. you kind of got to engage in any service uh, um, um, sector I've ever been in. Um, you've also got to work with what's the, what does the client want, but how do you shape their expectations? It's a dialogue you, it's rather a dialogue. than a one-way, yeah. Yeah, so you share information with mm. them, you share uh, knowledge with them, and you, you enable them to make better choices that you can then meet. So it's entering into that space of kind of a real sense of partnership with the person you're providing services to. Mm. And what's the cultural implication of that? You know, so this... You signalled it early on that, you know, part of this for you is about um, organisational change and sort of reorienting the organisation in some way, including its culture. What What's your observation about what, what that's about? Well, I think it's been prepared to ask really searching and hard questions about what, what impact do we have? I mean, all the discussion about measurement and evaluation outcomes as opposed to, um, you know... Uh, activity-based measurement, all that comes into play, uh, that's quite challenging for all of us in the sector um, because uh, I think, uh, you know, being a bit provocative, I think there are large kind of areas of service where we have uh, often over-serviced. I mean, that's a, that's a euphemism quite often that we develop mutually dependent relationships with people. We feel good about it, but where's the measurement to say that we're actually doing the best thing by the person? I think there's a, there's, there's a lot in there we as a sector need to shine a bright light on. 
the NDIS CDC approach, actually, you've got no choice. You've really got to, you know, be clear about what's the service, what is it doing, what impact is it is it having. Um, and I think in many areas we've been able to kind of escape that kind of um, uh, very, very clear oversight that should be there. So out of this, I expect over time that we will be achieving better outcomes more efficiently, frankly, with the resources that we have at the moment. So I think it's a good thing. Mm. And I interviewed um, Alan Bador recently, um, the, you know, the chair of Jewish Care, and he said in the interview, you know, oh, you should be scared. You know, if you're not scared, then you don't understand what's happening. Is that right? And how should organisations be taking account of this in a way that positions them to succeed? Is there a risk that organisations won't actually survive um, this period? And how do they know that they're kind of, you know, in that risk category? What are the markers for you that you've really got it? I think it's a it's ultimately a question of leadership. Um, leadership's responsibility is first of all to be kind of real about the nature of the challenge. Secondly, um, to then start on a longer term process of leading change within the organisation. Um, and I think if that if you know, and I'm, I'm very conscious of the fact that um, leaders who can um, really at the end of the day present this as this is a good opportunity. Not for us, it is a good opportunity for our clients and the communities we serve. Um, if there isn't that fundamental understanding about this is a good direction to go in, well, why will anybody move? So that's number one. Mm. Secondly will be a kind of a... Can I ask yeah. about that, Richard? What is it that they would be embracing there? What's And you, we're moving on to that kind of leadership essence. You know, what for you in your observation and now sort of putting your mentoring hat on to what enables a leader to say, yes, you know, we're going on a big change journey mm, and off mm. we all go as opposed to this is fine, we can do business as usual, it's going to be okay, mm. you know, nothing too much needs to happen. What, you know, kind of a... I usually, in, with, faced with that kind of challenge, go back to purpose and I hold that space for some time. Why are we here? What are we here to do? What matters? Um, and that sounds pretty simple and fundamental, but I think a lot of organisations kind of rush over that and just assume, well, we all know why we're here. We're here to do good things for, you know, whoever the client group may be. But I've found, actually, if you really want to get engagement, commitment, passion, enthusiasm and the energy to go on a journey, that's going to be challenging. It's going to have its ups and downs and, you know, it's kind of um, uh, difficult moments. You absolutely need to forge up front. This matters and it matters for these reasons. And it's not a leader telling them that. It's a group actually discovering that and, dis and discussing it amongst themselves and taking ownership of it. Mm. And I also uh, believe that should be a, both a board, senior management and the wider organisation having a really kind of depth and profound understanding. Now, in those sorts of conversations and discussions, what people find is they, they kind of dig deep into their own, why am I here? What matters, and they realise that there's a kind of a profound and a shared belief amongst all of us that matters. So that, to me, is important. I also think it's frankly important in the commercial sphere quite often, um, because at the end of the day, it is about people and people being prepared to do things. Mm. Um, so that, to me, is the critical starting point. And in every organisation I've been in, I've often said to boards 
and the stakeholders around this is to say, you know, we're just not going to jump in. You're not going to have 100 days of fantastic kind of, you know, results, new directions and all kinds of things. We're going to have a conversation and we're going to take a bit of time to work this out and sort this out because if that's done well, once you move to action, once you move to implementation, you've got the commitment, you've got the engagement and you've got the belief and trust Mm. of people in the organisation that we're doing this for really good reasons is absolutely core to purpose and frankly professionally personally it's a really satisfying and a tremendously exciting thing to be part of mm. it's um you know as you speak what's um reflecting for me is you know the the microcosm macrocosm thing you know that you as an individual were interested in the question of why am i here and what matters to me and do you think that's an important part of what leaders and, you know, for the purposes of this discussion in social purpose organisations particularly, need to have connected with enough because actually that's what it takes to bring everybody on a courageous, you know, make make meaningful the journey of, of change in, in some ways. But yeah, I do because it's often assumed that, um, and I sometimes refer to it as the kind of moral high ground position um, that people assume in our sector. They say, well, you know, we don't need to do that. We all know why we're here. You know, we're here to do good things. Um, and particularly with corporate, uh, people from a corporate background coming into our sector, they're kind of bit, they think, oh, you know, this must be terrific. You've got people who just want to be at work every day and are fired up and that's so different from my experience in my last corporate role. And I say, woo, 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 woo. The, you know, the social purpose sector is made up of real people. You know, they're complex. They have things which are admirable. They have things which motivate them, which are great. Sometimes they have other aspects of their character and personality that, you know, a little bit like what you've experienced in the corporate world. Mm. Let's get real about that. Let's just not assume everybody's here to do good things and be lovely people to work with every day. Mm. Let's examine that. Let's pull that apart a bit and be real about it. And frankly, the corporate experiences that I had and the leadership I experienced at a young age in the corporate arena, when I look back on it, there were people who sort of had a basic understanding of that, Mm. that I'm not here... You know, just simply saying I'm here for a big salary or whatever, that yeah. that's only gets you so far. There you, are people with emotional intelligence and self-reflection across the economy. Yeah, mm. and who want to believe that whether I'm working for a mining company or I'm in a bank or I'm working in a social mm. purpose organisation, I actually am interested and deeply thoughtful about, well, you know, what makes a difference here? And you can make a difference to society in all of those roles. Mm. It's always a question of how you do it and connecting with what matters to you. Yeah, and I, that, you know, that's such an important um, principle, isn't it, in terms of respecting all and, and being open to dialogue and, and being able to um, not have a holier-than-thou position. Mm, absolutely, mm. yeah. Thank you, Richard. That was, uh, that was wonderful and, um, as always, um, a grounding and insightful conversation. So oh, thank, thank you. you very much. Yep. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Richard Spencer and we will be back next month with our Insight newsletter and the following month with another podcast from someone memorable and insightful about leadership and organisational change. And um, in the meantime, have a fabulous month. Thank you very much. Our conversations may run dry as night passes by But I don't mind sitting in the silence with you 
In your face I read between the lines Whatever comes first to mind But I don't